Let's go ahead and turn our attention this morning to God's Word, specifically the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bible, would you turn this morning to Exodus chapter 3. We've been making our way through the book of Exodus, and this morning we're going to attempt to bite off a bit of a bigger chunk than we have in recent weeks, making our way from verse 1 of chapter 3 through verse 31 of chapter 4. But let's begin by just reading the first 10 verses to set the context for where we're going to be. Exodus chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not. Come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Would you pray with me? Father, how greatly we need your help this morning to hear and understand your word. Not only to intellectually make sense of the words that are arranged on this page, but Father, we need help in the the very moral capacity to hear, to receive, to believe, and to obey. And Father, we know that that only comes about by the gracious working of your Spirit and your faithfulness to your promise. And so we pray along those lines that you would be faithful to your promise and that you would graciously aid us this morning by your own Spirit, that we might see the truth of your Word, that you might change us, conform us, even cause us to be born again, that we might find that our trust and our belief is ultimately in you and our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. I believe in God. Have you ever said those words? Maybe you said them to yourself in a moment of trial as an act of faith, an act of resolve. I believe in God. Maybe you've affirmed your belief in God when somebody asked you about your religious practice. I believe in God. But have you ever had someone else tell you that they too believe in God? Perhaps a missionary knocked at your door, reads from a book other than the Bible, and yet they say, I believe in God. Or maybe a coworker that assures you that while they don't go to church and they don't read their Bible, they most certainly believe in God. At first hearing this profession of, I believe in God, it does sound comforting, almost as if you'd found some sort of existing point of alignment or agreement with somebody else who also says, I believe in God. But upon further consideration, is a mere profession of belief in God sufficient? Is it the zeal of our belief? Is it the sincerity of our belief that is our ultimate concern? Is my belief 
in something or someone the source of my comfort? Or is it the object of my belief and the character of the one in whom I'm believing upon that is the lasting sense of assurance and comfort? At the end of Exodus 2, we're told something very important about God. If you remember back, verse 23 and 25, we're told that the cry of Israel came up to God. The people groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw his people, and God knew. So we're told something very important about God. God hears, God sees, God knows. In fact, God said he's going to act. But the only way that this is of any sort of comfort is if we know something about this God. If we stopped right here in verse 25 and said, what a good story, is it? How is this God going to act? Who is this God? What sort of character does he have? Follow-up question, if I may. Is he able to actually do what he promises? And can I trust him? Can I actually believe that what he says will come to pass? This gets at the root of a belief in any God. These are not only the questions that unfold here before us in our text this morning, but these are the very questions that you ought to be asking and seeking to answer in your life. Who is this God? Is he sufficient? And ought I believe in him? Regardless if you believe in God or not this morning, these are the questions that the scriptures would put in front of us. And if you believe in God this morning, These are the questions that Scripture puts in front of you this morning. So let's consider the first question. Who is this God? Back in verse 1, we're introduced to Moses. He's in the wilderness, shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law. And we're told that he encounters a bush that's on fire, but it is not quenched. The bush is not consumed. What are we told about this God in this brief and probably familiar encounter to many of us? The first thing that we're told about this God in verses 1 through 6 is that he is holy. Now, holiness is a major theme within the book of Exodus. We have a holy God. He establishes a holy day. He dwells in the holy place. He makes a holy people. And yet before any of that unfolds, Moses must experience something of this God and his holiness. Initially, Moses thought he would turn aside to see this sight, something one would do out in the wilderness. That's not something I see every day. I'm out here quite often. I'm going to turn aside. Let's go over here, sheep. Let's see what this is. But that curiosity quickly turns to deep reverence. He hid his face. He was brought low in reverent fear. What he learned very quickly is that this God is not a spectacle to observe. He is a fearful God that's to be worshipped. And when we speak of the holiness of God, we are speaking of the radiant zeal of his purity, of his righteousness, and of his infinite perfections. Pastor and theologian John Dagg said this, Goodness, truth, and justice are moral attributes of God. Holiness is not an attribute distinct from these, but a name which includes them all. God is holy. But that's not the only thing that we find out about this God in the first few verses, because in verses 7 through 10, which we just read, we also hear that this God is also faithful and merciful. Oh yes, he's holy, but he's faithful and merciful. Why do we say that? Well, because we read that this God has seen the affliction of his people. 
He's heard their cries. He knows their sufferings. And he has come down. Did you catch that? What a beautiful metaphor. Now, we know God is not constrained by space or contained within space. He doesn't have to travel from place to place like we do. But when he uses this metaphor, I have come down, that gives to us a wonderful expression of what he is doing right here. It is as if he's saying, I'm not standing back. I'm not just watching all of this happen from a safe distance. I'm drawing near. I'm most certainly high above all things. But I've come down. That's what God is saying. God is taking it upon himself to deal with the needs of his people. So much is contained in those few words. I have come down. And by identifying himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's alluding to the great promise that he has already made, that he will most certainly remember his people, that he will remember the promises, and that he will keep his word out of his mercy and kindness. He's assuring them, reminding them, that he will deal with his people according to his faithfulness. He deals with his people not according to what they have earned, or according to what they deserve, but out of his faithfulness and out of his mercy. Do you know that? Not just do you merely know, kids, the catechism answer. Do you know it experientially? Do you know what it is to experience a God who deals with you in faithfulness and in mercy, not according to what you've earned? and not according to what you deserve. Who is God? Well, he's altogether holy. He's unapproachable. He's an unquenchable fire. And yet, he is also this God of steadfast love and mercy. He is majesty, and he's mercy. Hold on to both of those. Hold on to both of those revelations, because you're going to need them. Not just to make sense of the rest of the book of Exodus, or even the entire Bible. You need those two revelations to make sense of your life. For unless you deal with God's holiness, you will never understand the offense of your sin or the judgment it deserves. And unless you understand and lay hold of this revelation of His steadfast love and mercy you will never understand the joyous experience of having the burden of sin removed. We need both. And this leads us to our second question. Is this God enough? Who is he? And is he enough? God has just made this grand sweeping promise of his people's deliverance, and then in verse 10, he tells Moses, Moses, you go to Pharaoh, And you do it. Who am I? Is Moses', as we're going to hear, understandable response to the inadequacy that he feels in light of the greatness of Egypt. But what Moses is not yet considering is the adequacy of God. Is God enough? God is even going to promise that he will be with Moses. I'll I'll give you my presence, Moses. But mere presence alone is not necessarily a comfort. Think of some of those in your own life, humanly speaking, that have promised to come alongside you, and though well-intending, maybe not able to really offer anything of help. But they're there. Is that the same with God? Is his presence sufficient? It's only when we understand who this God is that the assurance of his presence holds any weight. And so what does God do? Well, he reveals something of himself that has everything to do with his sufficiency. First thing he does is he says, I have a name. Look back at chapter 3. Look at verse 11 now. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, 
but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The question of names has proven somewhat important in Exodus thus far. Remember Moses' name? It actually means drawn out of the water, describing some of the circumstances of his birth and his life. Moses had a son named Gershom. That name reveals Moses' circumstances. I'm a sojourner. So to ask God's name is essentially to ask, what are you like? What are you about? What are the circumstances that would define you? Give me some sense of your identity. Answer? I am that I am. God is unlike anyone. He is unlike anything. There is no circumstance. There is no created thing or being that can define or shape him. He is like himself. I am that I am. Now this has everything to do with the substance of God's being. He is ever-present. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. And he is always faithful. He is not only here in the present, but he is always what has been and what always shall be. A statement like this is so deep that it has no bottom. I am that I am is so mysterious, it's so profound that we could attempt to unpack this statement right here for the next 100 sermons and never come close to even scratching a a mere fleck of what it means to mine the depths of this statement, and yet we will spend all eternity in awe of this reality if you're a Christian. And this God instructs Moses to say that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. I am. He's self-sufficient, and therefore he's sufficient for you. He possesses the fullness of being in himself, so that means that he is never unable to deliver us. He is unchanging, ever faithful, and yet there's always more of him for us to discover. And he says, I am that I am. And Moses, you could also say when they ask, the Lord has sent me to you. Now, most likely, if you look down at your Bibles, this name that is written Lord in small caps there in verse 15, that is done that way because it stands in for the divine name, which is Yahweh. Four letters in Hebrew. Now, traditionally, out of respect Jews would not even pronounce it out loud, but would instead say Adonai, which means Lord. And the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, followed this convention using the Greek name Lord whenever Yahweh is present, standing in for the divine name. And so the name Yahweh, it's actually related to the same Hebrew verb to be. So when God says, I am that I am, Tell them, I am has sent you. It's essentially giving a bit of commentary on the divine name, Yahweh. He's saying the same thing. Something of who he is. 
But why does this matter? Why is this important? Because it has everything to do with who He is, that God is able to announce things with absolute certainty. God is able to direct Pharaoh's desires. God is able to command the forces of nature to clear a path for God's people through the sea and destroy God's enemies. God is able to judge and forgive sin at the same time. God is able to make sinful people holy so that He, a holy God, can dwell with a holy people. Yahweh does this. I am that I am. That's who's sending you, Moses. And so the question of His sufficiency is not only answered in the revelation of His name, but also the revelation of His authority. Is this God enough? Well, do you know His name? And secondly, have you considered His authority? This becomes clear as we read further in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go out empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Moses is to stand before the elders and to speak to them, not in his own authority, but in the authority that God has given. And God reveals to Moses that he is most certainly sufficient because he has authority over all that Moses fears. What was that? Well, verse 17, God promises that he will bring them out of the affliction of Egypt and he will bring them into the land of Canaan. Verse 20, God will stretch out his hand and he will strike Egypt. He will do it. Verse 21, he will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and they shall not go out empty. Yes, Moses, Pharaoh is going to resist, but I will overcome that resistance. In fact... God is going to overcome this resistance so fully and unquestionably that when they leave, the Hebrews are going to fill their pillowcases with Egyptian loot and plunder the country like conquering victors. Yes, Pharaoh has authority, but it is a delegated authority. And Yahweh is going to flex his power so that the might of Egypt is going to bow before God And the wealth of Egypt is going to be placed in the hands of those who were once Hebrew slaves. That's the sort of authority that we're speaking of, Moses. Who are you, Moses? Wrong question. Who am I? Ask that question. Ponder that reality. Fix it in your mind and on the authority and the eternality of my presence and go forth into all that I have commanded you. Who am I? And how often, friends, do we face the task that God has called us to do and crumble under the weight of what lies before us? Raising children, being faithful in our jobs, our call to evangelize, caring for aging parents, 
pastoring a church, living as faithful members of a church, can often expose these gaping holes of our own inadequacy. And it's true, we are most certainly inadequate for the task. But like Moses, we might come to the wrong conclusion. And maybe you've done this just even this week. I can't do this. Therefore, I won't. But what's wrong with that equation? The problem with that sort of thinking is that it leaves God out of any of what I've just said. Instead, what I should say is is I, I can't. But he can. Therefore, I will. Those are massively different statements. When Jesus ascended, what were his final words to this ragtag group of disciples? In Matthew 28, the risen Jesus said, All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. And then he gave some instruction that we're probably very familiar with. But do you know how he closed out? Do you know the bookends around that instruction? Not only that all authority has been given to me, but behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The authority of Christ and the presence of Christ have always been the great source of comfort for God's people. And one way that this biblical truth becomes very practical is when another church member confesses their inadequacy to what God has called them to do. To you. And when they do, your response should not be to affirm their ability to do it within themselves. It's well meaning, but it is woefully unhelpful to pat someone on the back and say, You got this. Keep going. I just told you I don't got this. How much more edifying, how much more biblical would it be to say, I understand. I often feel inadequate. But God, who is eternally sufficient, perfectly holy, unchanging, ever-present, promises that his ability is sufficient for our inability. Let's cast our cares upon him. Christian, God's plans for your life will often bring you up against the very circumstances that expose your true weakness. Let me put it this way. To expose the fact that you're not God. But that weakness is intended to actually reveal the other part of God's plan. His plan to accomplish his will through our lives by his enabling. Victory over temptation, patient endurance and failing health, prolonged trials in marriage, parenting, finances, relationships, that staying power and that faithful obedience in the midst of that It magnifies the presence of God among his people. That is the edifying and encouraging revelation. Is God enough? Yes. His name is Yahweh, and he has unmitigated authority over all things. Last question. Ought we to believe this God? Notice... Chapter 4. And notice how the entirety of chapter 4 is bookended by the subject of belief. Chapter 4, verse 1. They will not believe me, nor listen to my voice. How's the story end? Look at verse 31. And the people believed. There's a lot that happens between those 30 verses. But before we dive into that, you need to see that that is the thread that ties all of this together is essentially the question, ought I believe this God? Again, underneath all of this dialogue, Moses is essentially wrestling with, can I believe God's words or not? 
He said that I'm going to lead these people out. But if I'm honest, uh, I don't know if they're going to believe me. I don't know that I'm capable. I don't know that Pharaoh's going to think it's a good idea to just flush all of his workforce out into the wilderness by asking. And yet, the close of this section affirms the people do believe. In fact, they believe so soundly that it's not that they just believe Moses. They believe in God because they bow their heads in worship. He's heard our prayers. So how does God respond to Moses' concern? First, he gives signs and words. Signs and words. Notice how this pops up. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then... Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put it out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water of the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and that water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, and you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs." Ought I believe this God? Well, he gives signs and he gives words. In verses 2 through 9, God gives three signs to Moses. Each of these signs demonstrate God's power as creator and they prove Moses to be God's agent. They're meant to provoke Israel to trust in God that he is the deliverer and that Moses is his representative. The cobra snake was beloved in Egypt, a beloved symbol. And yet Moses is told to grab this snake by the tail and turn it into his own staff. Absolute authority over this snake. By afflicting his hand with the corrupting disease and then healing it, God is proving that he has the ability to curse and to bless. And finally, that God would turn water, the source of life, into blood, symbol of death. Typically, when you apply for a job, you present a resume or a CV, depending on your vocation. 
that proves your competence for the job. You can list and say, look, I have this training, I have this degree, I have this certification, I have this experience. I'm qualified. These signs affirm and they validate Moses' credentials, that he's God's agent, enabled with God's power, and that he is God's means to do this. And then, in verses 10 through 17, did you notice the focus of the section? It has everything to do with speech. It has everything to do with words and Moses' ability to speak. Moses doubts his ability to lead, to, to say anything helpful, given his slowness of speech and his inability to communicate. But even here, God accommodates Moses' um, concerns by assuring him of his ability. Moses, who makes the mouth? I got this. Now, pause for a second. Up until this point, in verse 13, Moses has had his doubts. But he's brought those doubts to the Lord. Up until this point, it's fair to say he kept talking and kept listening to God in the midst of his doubts. But now something happens in verse 13 where he says, I'm done. I quit. Send someone else. Friend, there is a massive canyon of difference between bringing your doubts to God and giving up on God. We should see God's tenderness and patience with this Moses up until this point as a great encouragement for those who have doubt. I heard some great counsel from another pastor this week. If you doubt, doubt in God's direction. Let your doubts drive you to prayer, not away from it. Let your doubts drive you to listen to God, not to shut your ears to Him. Friend, God's anger in verse 14, is, is a warning. It may be fashionable to deconstruct your faith. It may be fashionable to erode the sort of assurances and promises that God gives in His Word, to sound intellectual or honest or authentic. But verse 14 warns us that God's patience has a limit. It's possible to provoke the Lord to anger. It's one thing to struggle in faith. But it's another thing to scoff at God and what he's revealed and to reject his word. If you doubt, doubt in God's direction. In your doubts, let them drive you to prayer, not keep you from it. God promises to give signs. He promises to give words. But how else can I know that I can believe him, Moses says. Well, lastly, we know that we can believe him because he gives judgment and mercy. Look back at verse 18 of chapter 4. After hearing of these signs... And these words, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And so the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and he had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him in the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs with which he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went together, gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Moses did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Here we have essentially three accounts. Some are bewildering, even disturbing. But there is a thread that runs through all three of these sections, which I believe proves helpful. Keep in mind what's being told here. There is a concern for belief and unbelief. That concern is met with signs and words. The provision of signs and words. And this thread of signs and words, it runs through the account of Pharaoh. It runs through the account of the people. And in the middle of that, this Moses Zipporah circumcision thing, it actually runs through there as well. Notice what's given to us in God's word. In verses 21 through 23, it's the unbelief of Pharaoh that will bring about deserved judgment. Let my people go. If you don't, your firstborn son shall die. Verses 30 through 31, the belief of the people that brings reverence and worship because they heard the words and they saw the signs. Now, verses 24 through 26 Moses' disobedience deserves judgment, but instead it's met with mercy through the covering of blood. Let's just walk through these very quickly to understand how all of this is given to us in God's word to show to us that we can most certainly trust him. Consider Pharaoh and his unbelief, because in verses 21 through 22, Moses tells Pharaoh, he's going to tell him that he will perform these signs, and yet Pharaoh's not going to listen because God will harden his heart. After this, Moses is to warn Pharaoh that unless he will let Israel, his firstborn son, go, God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. Now, we'll say more about God hardening Pharaoh's heart in forthcoming sermons. But for now, give some attention to Proverbs 21, verse 1, which says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign, even over the heart. But this sovereignty over our inward being does not deny our freedom or our accountability. It actually secures both of them. And if you want further meditation on this, consider Revelation 9. Excuse me, Romans chapter 9. The main point here is that God is going to judge Pharaoh and the judgment is going to be severe and fair. He will give the signs, he will hear the words, but he will remain in unbelief. Okay, well, what about Moses? Being perfectly honest, this account in verses 24 through 26 is even more bewildering. But the bit of background that's essential and helpful is that God has actually already given to Moses a sign. And God has actually already given to Moses a word. Back in Genesis 17, God gave very clear instruction to Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 9. God said, 
to Abram. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. That includes Moses and his sons. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God commanded to have all the sons of the covenant circumcised, and those who did not would be cut off from God's people. Notice, God has given to Moses the sign of circumcision, and God has given to Moses his word and his direction. And yet, Moses proved his unbelief through his disobedience. Don't miss what's happening here. Moses was setting out to lead God's people, and yet Moses is being disobedient to the plainest command that marked out God's covenant people. Moses is a hypocrite. And God takes hypocrisy very seriously. In order to show just how seriously, Moses is under the threat of death. This is not ignorance. This is disobedience in the light of revelation. And yet, his wife, Zipporah, steps in. Now, if you're keeping notes at home, this is yet another time that Moses' life has been saved by a bold and faithful woman. She circumcises their son and then takes the blood of her son and applies it to Moses' body, bloodies him. As if to say, let this be accredited to you as if you did your job. As if you had done what was required of you. To understand this episode, we need to put the two accounts together of Pharaoh and his son, verses 21 to 23, and here in 24 to 26. 21 to 23, there's a promise of judgment for hard-hearted disobedience to God's word and his authority. And then right on the heels of that with Moses, verses 24 to 26, the same concern for judgment over disobedience to God's word is seen, but Moses' life is spared because of the blood being applied to his life, satisfying the demands of the covenant. In a way, this is Moses' own little Passover. It's a preview of what's going to come for all of God's sons. That the blood will be applied to them. Judgment will pass over. Their life will be spared. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you know how this very same theme unfolds even more as we move into the New Testament, where this idea of the blood of another being applied to the guilty, preserves them from judgment. Friend, what this story is setting up is that the reality of God's own Son and His blood being applied to disobedient people, sinners, and they escape the judgment that they deserve. Even here in Exodus, we're seeing those themes begin to be painted upon the canvas that we might understand God's means to save, to redeem His people. But then there's this third, last section in verses 30 through 31. The people and their belief. Again, notice how the threads of signs and words tie all of this together. Aaron spoke the words to the people of Israel. Moses did the signs. Just like Pharaoh will have. Just like Moses had. And this time, they believed. In fact, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Behold your God. His name is Yahweh. He's the all-sufficient one. He is holy and merciful. See the signs, hear the words, bow and worship. Church, do you hear the plain teaching of Scripture? Yahweh has heard the cries of his people. 
He has remembered his covenant. He has visited his people, and he's seen their affliction. Who is this God, you ask? Is he sufficient? Ought you to believe him? Yes. He alone has life and glory and goodness and blessedness all within himself. He alone is the all-sufficient one. He does not need any creature, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his glory in them, by them, to them, and over them. He alone is the source of all being, and in everything from him and through him and to him is to be glorified. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures. He does as he pleases. And in his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. And he's absolutely holy in all his plans, all his works, and all his commands. This God, the I Am, the Jehovah Lord, has visited his people. He's spoken plainly, and he has given us unmistakable signs. How will you respond? Will you believe? Will you believe that he hears your cries? Will you believe that his word is sufficient to direct, sustain, guard, and satisfy you? Will you believe that God has come down? That God has taken on human flesh? That the Father has sent the Son? And will you believe that Christ's death upon the cross is sufficient to cleanse you from the guilt of sin, to restore you into fellowship with God, and secure everlasting life? Will you believe in Him? by turning from your sin and trusting upon Jesus' provision at the cross. God has visited his people, and his name is Jesus. And when he speaks, you hear the words of life. And in him, God has given to us the greatest sign, resurrection from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was the ultimate sign of his ability to rescue his people. That was the landmark sign that says, I am God. I am sufficient. You can and must believe in me. And when God's people hear of such holiness and such mercy and such provision and such faithfulness, they bow their heads. They worship in belief. Father, we ask and we pray that you would do so among us. We ask and we pray that you would be merciful and faithful to us. That you would be so kind to reveal yourself to us in all of your sufficiencies that it might drive us to that same place of gladly submitting ourselves to you and trusting in the provision of your Son, we pray. Amen.